everybody and, and welcome to the show. We've got a great guest coming on uh, shortly, Maria Wheatley from the uh, AveryExperience.co.uk. I'll put links to that in the show notes so you'll be able to find it, as well as our website, which you can't find on search engines yet, and I've explained that already. Um, sorry for the delaying shows, we did have bandwidth problems, there was uh, basically too many people was looking at older stuff as well as the newer stuff, so we've had to move some of the older stuff onto the website, so that that's where you'll find the older episodes now. The first you will be in the feed, and then obviously the older ones will be on the website, just out of the way, basically. So if, uh, yeah, if you find anyone that's interested in the show, direct them to the website. Again, thank you very much for your reviews. Uh, we had one, Caldicott777. Thank you very much for your review on iTunes. Again, people, if you have the time to do so, we really, really appreciate it. Everybody that gets in touch with me by email, thank you very much. Um, we have some great conversations that. Again, please follow us on Twitter. Yeah, you can get in touch with us there, but email's just as good. And that's dbtopodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the interview today and, uh, you know, and all the things that we touched on, please, please, please let Maria know because it helps us if if uh, you guys can reach out to these people that we have on the show and just let them know that their time's been appreciated and or you found something interesting or even if you've got questions for her, you know, even that, just, you know, just touch touch base with her, get, you know, send her an email, you go on the website, you'll find her email address pretty easily. Just send her an email and just say, you know, you heard her on the Don't Break the Earth podcast and just say you enjoyed it, um, which I think you will. You know, well, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, a bit about Maria then. So Maria is a second generation dowser. Uh, she's also an accomplished author. She's got books out on the sacred sites and dowsing. But the, the most significant thing, if you like, about Maria is that she mixes the archaeology with the the earth energy side of things. So she looks at it from both angles, um, which is interesting and unique, probably. In the interview, we touch on ley lines, uh, Stonehenge itself, and the mystery surrounding that. We look at some of the elongated skulls again, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, and we look at some weird burials and, and all, sort, all sorts of things. So, yeah, we could have spoke for hours and hours, but, you know, we got a load in, in, in the hour, so it's fully loaded and... Uh, uh, I hope you all enjoy. Yep, yeah, sure. Well, uh, my name's uh, Maria Wheatley, and uh, I'm a guest here today. And I I love Dowson, and I love ancient sites, and I've always been into the ancient civilizations and their megalithic monuments, especially in the UK and Europe. I learned to douse for my late father, and I also got involved in astrology and tarot, and I run an esoteric college as well. So for me, there was a mixture of the the physical, like the standing stones of Stonehenge and also a metaphysical side like the energies such as earth energies and ley lines that link the physical to the metaphysical and that we are the kind of intermediate for these energies and for the physical sites themselves. So I cover the ancient sites archaeologically speaking and I cover them metaphysically speaking as well. Mm, yeah, so we are most at like the the operator in a, you know, in the old the energies, traditional yeah. phone calls. Yeah, like, I like to say to Maria, I'm a, I'm a psychic medium as well. I, I've been into spiritual stuff uh, since I was a very little boy. So, you know, I've seen spirit and I've, I've been actually to Avebury itself and to West Kennet, uh, Silbury Hill. And you can feel the energy. It's like a hum. It's, a, it's, it's, it's you know, you've got to get, go to these places to, to feel the energy. And it's, I find Silbury Hill fascinating. Uh, it's just, you know uh, the energy around there is just amazing 
just you know the the barrows itself you know the uh, people think all oh, these barrows people just come there to bury the dead i think there's more there there's definitely more before that what they used what they used for absolutely that's their secondary and last phase burial deposits you are very right there now the first phase of these ancient long barrows and i like to call them mounds because barrow does point to burial rites were probably for uh oracles initiation some kind of spiritual ceremonial practices is clear because you have acoustic properties in these places if you're just putting a you know burying somebody you wouldn't really go to all of the trouble of finding earth energies ley lines acoustic properties a cobbled roof which makes the earth energy more enhanced so clearly they were used for that and then round about the end of the neolithic period because i think long mounds are far far older than what we're told of 3800 bc on average i think they go back to about 10,000 bc and the ones that were later used for burial deposits were then sealed i mean the long mounds are thousand years older than the stone circles of avebury and then they were all sealed off round about the year the period rather of 2500 bc so we're talking we're talking druids druid country the magicians aren't we really uh, you know, yes. This is well. I I I call it Druid country because that's where you know. Uh, I I believe there's only two factions on the earth. You have got your armies and you have got your magicians, and that's it. You know, uh, and the Druids. I think the Druids around the area were the magicians. You know. Yes, absolutely, and I think that the, a lot of the high higher ranking high priests, high priestess, magicians. Uh, druids were placed within to these barrows and there are certain burials which we could touch upon uh, later yep. that were placed into the mound of the henge that's the kind of big circular earthen ditch and bank that surrounds stone circles it's called a henge yep. they were placed into these monuments ceremonially like they were the guardians of the stone circles so when we uh, you know when we look at uh, modern um you know uh, what's the what's the word you know like um the way the status quo if you like we, we're told that these things are what uh, uh, no older than 8000 years old well the archaeological model puts uh, some of the monuments uh, in the southwest of england to 5500 years old and on the west coast of ireland a little bit older than that i mean there was an ice cap here around about 11000 years ago but i think after the period of 10000 10, uh, bc that's when there were monuments put into the landscape so i really do feel that just because they haven't yet been found because nobody has dug down deep enough in certain areas to find them it will it will come about and carbon dating from grain which is carbon and the archaeological holy grail dated some parts of stonehenge to 7000 bc with these grain deposits so you know they are pushing the dates back somewhat yeah yeah and when we um when we talk about these uh, megalithic structures and that, we we tend to focus a little bit on the fact that they always seem to be placed on ley lines, which is uh, and, you know the skeptics will say this is just coincidence, um, which I find no, it's not coincidence. <laughs> it's crazy, like crazy. But... Every church, every cathedral, right, is always built purposely on a ley line. Period. And you know why? You know, and well, it, it's 
it's the, the lays the lays are strong and you're right but i mean when you have a lay system and that's a, a line with uh male and female currents entwining it that's even more uh powerful and you also get uh energy lines that start in a particular area of the landscape and if you imagine that they rise out of like a vortex and they're male and female combined they're called genesis lines and they flow throughout in a serpentine fashion around a ceremonial landscape they are very very powerful and we've done a lot of scientific tests on these vortex points where they rise out of the ground and they're probably more powerful than lays themselves in terms of frequency and land placement they're like the serpent in the land interesting that all these ancient cultures talk about serpents as uh, you know as being um, there but you know and uh, given given uh, knowledge and, mm. and all this yeah, yeah. stuff, you know. So, do you think that's tied into this, the, just the the, for, the form that they take? Well, yeah, because you know, the lines are uh, a straight line has always been traditionally in ancient cultures. Their energy travels too fast along it; they are conductors. Whereas the serpentine currents that meander, like great rivers do, as an analogy, you know, a river meanders. Yeah. The meandering serpentine currents are uh, powerful and very uh, transformative, and the lays that are associated to them, because we're looking at earth energy and lay energy, can conduct that energy along that whereas the serpentine features are of slower conductor and more conducive to good health mm. it's like um, you know with the ley lines and that it's easy, easily dismissed by skeptics and, and all the rest of it but when you look into other cultures and you get like Feng Shui um, chakras you know the fact that it's popping up all over the world chakra is a, a wheel of energy anyway well, the, chakra, you know, the fact that it's popping up all yeah, over the world sh- should lend some weight to it um, and obviously this can be tested nowadays and I, I know there was um, was it uh, the, the Dragon Project tested Stonehenge and other megalithic sites Rollwright and Avery, they, they focus mainly on Rollwright and I have worked independently away from the Dragon Project in more modern times with Dragon Project members such as Rodney Hale and uh, another engineer called um, David Webb. So we've kind of uh, modernised their, their results and, and looked beyond to just stone circles and we focused on the earth energies and megalithic energies themselves and there have been quite a few experiments and you know Rodney Hale that worked for both Paul Devereux on the Dragon Project and uh, you know with me so to speak he is a scientist he wants to put things through the statistical t-test he doesn't want to say oh this energy's here because Maria and Maria's dousing rod say so I mean he really wants to understand the electromagnetic frequencies that they're emitting are they subject to sunspot activity lunar activity celestial bodies moving over these points so having these inquiring left and right brains working together uh, unravels uh, a holistic understanding of the earth energies of which Gaia admits. Mm. And what were some of the key findings in, in your experiments of these places? Our key findings were that we found that the serpentine currents, some are male and some are female, 
Uh, and Hamish Miller, who discovered these back in the 1980s, and Hamish uh, forwarded one of my books actually on Avery. He was a lovely, uh, fantastic uh, dowser, brilliant researcher, and, and all-round lovely chap actually. But uh, what uh, Hamish uh, discovered, he discovered these serpentine currents uh, wrapping around the St. Michael Lay. And uh, Rodney and uh, myself, uh, what we decided to do was we would put copper probes into very strong copper probes into the ground, lap, connected to a laptop, etc., to see if we could pick up a, a signal. And uh, we did on the, on the Mary Current, and we picked up several, uh, three rather anomalous signals flowing right through the centre. And the intriguing thing was about these earth currents is they measured exactly all of our our own human uh, brainwave activity yep. going from yep. beta right the way to alpha. So I think the, the way our ancient ancestors entered Avebury Henge and other monuments, would they would go at a right angle against the energy line and then probably processionally walk along the centre so that their brains come into sync with the Schumann resonance, the heartbeat of Gaia and the uh, frequency of the Earth uh, current. So that was, you know, categorically undeniable. And we also, because Rodney was, you know, a scientific um, person and uh, and still is, we did controls either side of where I found these, and they would not produce these these signals. And furthermore, one of uh, the signals which needs more experimentation with, we only got it a few times. So you do need more than that to really categorise and understand certain frequencies. But I noticed on one uh, result, it was around the 25 uh, hertz, and I was given a, a lecture, and so was Dr. Sam of the Bosnian Pyramids fame, and he was mentioning 25 hertz, and I thought, hang on, that's the uh, prevailing frequency on the uh, female serpentine currents. So I think the, the reason why, you know, some of the uh, female and male serpentine currents flow into these energy sites is because they help to, that's the frequency of levitation according to Dr. Sam, and perhaps they were manipulating the stone and uh, somehow the earth currents could allow them to levitate. That's how the stone fetched, doesn't it, the, the levitation. But when you actually look at the, the, the size and the, the weight of these stones and, and just the actual you know, distance that they travelled with them... The, you have to come to some. You have to, you know, speculate on well, on all no, different you know, versions, don't you? I think levitation has to be right up up there um, for me. Yeah. So, do you think when we're talking about levitation and things like this, you know, these uh, technologies, if you will, that we've lost? Do you think this is because these people who are doing it uh, have themselves been lost? Do you think we're talking about a different kind of people altogether? What I feel happened and I think there's some evidence for this is the you see the Neolithic period of the long mounds predates the stone circle building phase by a thousand years but they were using the same earth energies and design cannons so that information was handed down to the Bronze Age who handed it down to the Druids and the Druids seem to have handed it down or it was uh, taken by them by the Knights Templar because they too have certain design cannons who then in turn must have um, communicated to the uh, to the 
Freemasons and other secret societies because they too have their similar design canons and eventually ended up in the hands of mystery schools like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, for instance. So there's there's a long lineage uh, going on throughout history. Basically, the Vatican stepped in. Yes, yes, yeah, of course. The Vatican stepped in and that was it. And, you know, uh, it's to me... You know, the, the, to me, the Vatican are the perpetrators, really, you know. So were these Templars, and uh, obviously given this knowledge and uh, understanding, they seem to seem to have an understanding. Do you think they got information, um, you know, do you think there is written information on this, or do you think this was just oral? 2,200 years ago in ancient China under an emperor that was a, a fantastic dowser and dowsing then was about the fertility of the earth as well as finding things like ley lines and you know underground water uh, they did write things down and you know and it became known as uh, you know uh, feng shui or feng shui however you want to uh, pronounce it and I do think there has been quite an oral tradition that has been kept in the myths of uh, and legends of our landscape as well. So I think a combination of finding out and research can we can remember the, the past and with with you know with good grounded research as well as kind of intuitive research combine the two and you know it does reveal an awful lot about our ancient past. Mm. And do you think this is why they? You know, it was given the orders to build churches in a certain way, in a certain location. Do you think it's linked back to this, uh, you know, technology, I'm going to say? Well, it was the Romans as well. The Romans did that when they, all of our invaders, uh, what, however you class them as, you know, whether they're, they're Saxon, Dane, Roman, uh, Vatican, you know, Catholic, whatever, they have always done that, looked to our ancient sites and placed their temples near them. Yep. For example, the Romans continually did that in the Avebury area and at Bath and at our spas and our sacred sites. And they just looked at the local gods and said okay we equate that to our god of healing we equate that to our god of mars and kind of renamed them but the energies that prevailed uh, were always there and that's just like same with some of the old medieval churches if they're on a female energy current predominantly speaking that they will be named after female saints yeah. do you think there's a there is a link between the acoustic properties and uh, you know what goes on in the church as well because uh, you know, for instance, Stonehenge, you know, the blue stones at Stonehenge, they, they've got an acoustic property that's, you know, second to none. So, and then we get this Gregorian chant and stuff like that going on in churches. Do you think it's, uh, it's linked? You think it's trying to conjure up the same energy, if you will? Yes, but in a more of a controlled fashion, mm. because in some of the medieval churches, um, that I'm very familiar with. The altar used to be deemed so sacred that you and I, you know, the average kind of uh, believer of yeah, that faith, couldn't see. Yeah, it had, yeah, sheep. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it had, that's a, why, had that's called... why the, the, the vicar used to look down at you, you know, because, you know, he was higher than you. 
Yeah, and they, with a screen in front of him called a rood screen, R-O-O-D. So you can actually see uh, anywhere into the depth of the church. So it was very con- concealed and uh, controlling. But that said, the acoustic properties of some ancient sites, especially those in Ireland called Karakil on top of a mountain, you go uh, into a white quartz. If you imagine a a round, large round mound, but instead of being made of earth or chalk like in Wessex, it's all of beautiful white quartz gleaming in the in the sun. And you now enter through a small chamber, which becomes large large enough to sit in comfortably and in some chambers uh, to stand in. But they're white quartz. Everything is made of white quartz. And then if you start to do acoustic work, as many people that I've taken there on tours do, they will feel the reverb of that sound energy coming back and activating what some would say is their chakra systems, their auric field, their consciousness. So they do bring about transformable changes. So they're like alchemic chambers. Yeah, so really, basically, it's all to do with vibration. It's all vibration. Same with the bells. You know, the music, the sound of the bells, it's all through a vibration, isn't it, really? Yeah, I agree, absolutely. So, <clears throat> coming back to ley lines then, I mean, is it possible to have, is it possible to distinguish between good ley lines and bad ley lines, or are they all the same? No, you get a very different types of lays. I mean, some could be very short and go from a standing stone to a standing stone, which has been documented since Alfred Watkins' times of the 1920s and 30s. You can get massive lays that go right across like Britain, for example. You can get huge global lays that become a circle that go right the way around the world, for example. Some flow too fast that if that is good for... Uh, crop growth or human uh, occupation and that has been proved with uh, experiments in the 1970s for instance when mustard seeds were grown upon uh, active flowing lays and you had stunted growth so that was proven that some lays can be like that because they're very fast flowing just like the ancient Chinese said it conducts sha chi uh, fast flowing energy and that's why all of their roofs have a kind of a horseshoe uh, arc so that the chi energy of the universe gracefully flows across the top of their roofs. And they think our oh, straight roofs conducting sha chi rather uh, is conducive to poor health and uh, aggravation. It can make you aggra- aggravated. So there is something clearly in that. Whereas other lays can be, you know, a little bit more harmonic. But generally speaking, it's the earth currents that entwine them that uh, are, are more conducive to, you know, one's health and well-being. Mm. So, I mean, as an analogy then, I, I wonder if this works. Uh, you know, like we use chakras in, for acupuncture. So, you know, to relieve or to access certain energies. No, that's, you know, blocks, mm. blockages, if you will. <coughs> so are these monuments mm. almost like the needles in acupuncture? They placed in these places to to release this energy. Would, would that work as an analogy? I think that they, they do sometimes work like that, but I think that the the way that they are acting is like they are on the lays, but they accumulate and generate an energy by themselves. Uh, any circular shape uh, will do that, and then it's more conducted along uh, the line and tra- transported to other places, linking up sacred site after sacred site in a kind of Wi-Fi network mm, across yeah. uh, across the ancient world. I, I, I always said 
uh, I told you before, didn't I? I always said that these barrows, I just call them internet bunkers. They're internet bunkers, you know, just to, to connect to Mother Air Force, you know, whatever. I always, I always call them the internet bunkers. But uh, what's your what's your take on the... I mean, I've been in a, a crop circle and I've felt the energy. What's your take on these crop circles, uh, Maria, please? Living in a mid-crop circle country, there yeah, are genuine ones yeah. and there are a lot of hoaxed ones as well done by... Um, uh, local teams and things and that is a reality so uh, in the genuine ones and some of the, the uh, man-made ones are you know very good they they are put on the, the lace to, that, to do all that to Yes, uh, sometimes uh, the, some of the uh, circle makers have taken two nights to do them. They use like occult symbolism, like cloaking, so that they, they cloak them at night and things. They're quite switched on people. And I'm non-judgmental, so I accept everybody's for their own spiritual journey, whatever that spiritual journey is. But nonetheless, in some of the more um, genuine crop circles, and they are energetic. But my fear is these days living amid all of this and seeing the Monsanto spraying that is going on. They now spray the crops prior to ripening them. And they're sprayed up to seven times. So I would say to people that go into crop circles these days, you know, be careful not to touch them too much. That There's a lot of you're sitting amid a chemical bath these days because of the Monsanto spray, which is a sad fact. And I don't want to sound, you know, negative to all of your new age listeners that, you know, out there but um it, it makes dogs eyes water it can irritate your skin because i live in a, the agricultural part of this land and so i see the good the bad and the ugly of course yeah and it kills bees which is yeah. exactly which is yeah. not great for anybody Correct. so um these energies then obviously people like yourself and 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 people who are able to douse properly uh, and obviously i've had a go at that now yeah we did so that i was shit when i but, no, uh, but well, it was quite successful yeah, wasn't it yeah, really? you did it but Good I, experiment. That was, that was Great experiment. but uh, the people that can do that and obviously the people who are more psychic than others i guess can feel these energies but the actual energies themselves have been seen visibly in in the form of air flights um you know what can you tell me about air flights Yes, well, when I was researching one of uh, my books, Avery Sun, Moon and Earth Energies, uh, my daughter at the time was uh, 10, uh, Raven. And uh, we both had a dream that eve that night, rather, that we would uh, see an earth light. So I said to, to Raven, you know, oh, OK, we've, we've had these kind of connections with these lights. Uh, what time would you suggest? Because kids are really receptive, you know, they're, they're really yeah, good. Absolutely. So I thought that's I'd, one of my favorites, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I asked her and she said, uh, sunset. And I felt the wear. I felt on what's called the Michael Earth Energy Meandering Current near my hometown. So we could walk the dog for an evening walk. It was summer. And her friend, her little friend Natalie was staying that night and we all went up and the earth light manifested for us. So I think that they can communicate with us. They, they are conscious. You can call them plasma and make them sound as scientific as you like like but they are an expression of Gaia's energies that want to interact with us and to awaken us and to so we can remember the past what did it uh, look like 
It was quite beautiful, actually. It was a lovely amber-colored ball of light, but a, a kind of light that you could see through. But it seemed quite dense. But you could see the beyond it, if you if you hear what I'm saying. And it and it, it came up out of the ground, moved along, and then just disappeared. And of course, uh, my daughter and her friend were jumping around, and they were saying, "Oh, it's a fairy light! It's a fairy light!" and you know, and they were they were really excited, and I think the the energy of the light really liked the children's energies because it seemed to go more to their direction than mine. It was like their kind of whole interaction was uh, was allowing that light to communicate. It's changed changed their lives as well. Hmm, I can imagine. So, what, did it did it give off um, like ambient light, or did it give off like you know like a, uh, you know like if you shine a torch, you get that that beam of light? Was it was it more ambient than than talk yeah right? yeah there was no, it wouldn't uh, make a shadow, for instance. And then I took the, the took a photograph of it because I took a camera up ready. And then I put that uh, particular shot through Photoshop just to play around with the light and dark, you know, as you do with photographs. And I noticed that the earth light stays constant. You can make it as dark as you like. So everything goes completely black. That stays constant. You can make it bleached out and as white as you like. The light stays constant. So it's almost, uh, it's almost, I know it's paradoxical, but it's almost a void. You know what I mean? Even though it's, it's lit, would you say? That, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A, a really good analogy. Yeah. So, um, obviously that sort of links in to some extent, um, with the UFO phenomenon, um, which, you know, these air flights could be misinterpreted as, as, yeah, as UFOs. Yeah, some people would say, oh, the UFOs or, yeah, that these places which we know not, seem to so. have, uh, more in the more in the way the fair share of UFO sightings. So, do you think that's significant, or do you think that's just coincidental? I think it's all integrated because you know at some of the ancient sites like Stonehenge, you have these massive, massive geo spirals of underground water, and that's their harmonic surface pattern. They create a vortex-like uh, energy, and I'm sure there's just enough below Stonehenge than there is above anyway. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's a point. And it is a UFO hotspot that area. Then back in the 70s, you had Warminster and Star Hill, and they. Were were real hot spots where lots of people up into their 50s and 100s used to stand on the hilltops to to watch the the UFOs so there is something about this area as in in the case of other areas as well and Stonehenge is surrounded by military establishments and people have seen Exactly. Same as lots of different places all over the countries. Yeah. I did a, a show with the UFO hunters from America, and they always said, have a vortex, have an ancient site, military UFOs. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. as their criteria for watching out for a UFO. So, yeah, there is something into it. exactly the same. So do you think the... Yeah. I mean, because obviously it's speculation, but, I mean, people... Uh, some people have come to the conclusion that the UFOs are harnessing the energy um, from these places and and you're talking about is, uh, I keep seeing this where geospires uh, mentioned is that what we're talking about when we're talking about this spiralling energy yeah. 
Yeah, a geospiral is the harmonic surface pattern of very, very deep underground water that is generated by Gaia and it's independent of rainfall, which I've been saying this for about 20 years, as have other water diviners. It's been a kind of water divining law. And just recently, a new scientist, they've actually said, yes, this can happen. The rocks can make water and it seeps through as rivers and as streams and it will eventually reach uh, the surface. I mean, because their other model prior to that was comet smashed into Mother Earth and dropped water. Okay. <laughs> That's, that was the model, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we will find that there is planetary bodies out there in space having their own water supply because planets generate water from deep within their own planetary bodies. And that's the spiral of that. So a water diviner can tell you what a good water diviner can tell you what sort of water you're living above. Uh, rainwater that falls and fills up the underground streams emits geopathic stress. But the geo spiral is, uh, is very harmonic. We've me- measured its frequency. It's, it can be around seven to uh, 11 hertz which is quite quite good to go to and interact with I wouldn't necessarily say live above these energies you interact with them like our ancient ancestors did yeah so that's getting down into the realms of um, infrasound at that that hurts I would say so absolutely they a lot of them are uh, infrasound and some of them are ultrasound there was a fantastic experiment done by the dragon project uh oh gosh i think it was back in the 70s actually but it could be in the 80s so forgive me if i've got the decade wrong but but what they did was they had some um bats uh sensoring equipment that could have ultrasound recordable they use it for you know bat detection but anyway that's that's what they were, were using and uh one of the um crew there they were walking in the in and out of the roll right ring yep and they thought that's strange each time i go out of the circle i'm getting a huge ultrasound signal but each time i go into to roll right it goes deadly quiet so he thought this is the wrong way around surely it should be the other way around there should be more activity on the inside to the out but they did it time and time again and came to the conclusion that at particular times of the year the roll right stones as at avebury as well become alive and release ultrasound out into the landscape like irritate irrigating the, the the landscapes beyond so that's ultrasound for example but yeah those frequencies you're right they the ones i've just spoken about are infrasound you, you can't hear any of them because hmm. i noticed there's quite a few chambers all around the world that uh, even like the pyramids in pl- places in malta where the the chambers uh, are der- buried deep in the ground and they all have really good acoustic properties and and so it was obviously trying to access something, you know, deep down. And if you're saying the water's giving off a harmonic resonance... It's, it's all energies. And it it's like all about energy and, I think, uh, these... Just trying to tap into that, you know? Yeah, and so initiations think, as well, I think, mostly. Because I'm wondering now, like, if this, uh, if we can draw on this energy and all the rest of it, do you think these people were using this energy to grow, grow crops, you know, to, to grow good harvests, do you think... Well, well, my latest experiments are doing just that. We're having a look at the uh, agricultural way of uh, enhancing uh, seeds. Now, there there was a particular uh, chap um, called um, um, 
I think he was called John Burke. Yeah, John Burke. He wrote a book, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. And he did a, a various experiments of putting seeds on top of mounds inside stone circles where you have these uh, frequencies. And he planted them in laboratories and found that they grew faster and stronger. I'm taking that experiment to the next level by looking at not just the place, but the specific type of earth energy that is related to, you know, good growth or poor growth, uh, etc., rather than just one landscape in itself. And I hope to have those by the uh, by the end of the year. We did some last year, but being a little bit uh, naive with the with the, the organic field that we had, the rabbits at them. <laughs> yeah, that's great for experiments. Well, we got the Russians have been doing it for 20, 30 years, yeah, building uh, the, pyramids uh, and the Russian ex- uh, Russian pyramid experiment. Yeah. They were they was actually. Uh, Exactly. I mean, if we take these type of uh, uh, and they're living experiments that can really change, you know, the way humanity lives, I think we can all move forward because, like I mentioned earlier with the crop circles, I am very aware of the amount of chemicals being put on the land. And if we just change uh, a few agricultural practices, then I feel that we'll be eating healthier. And, you know, especially with our water as well, we need to think about what we eat and what we drink and anyone that contributes that from any country, no matter how it's uh, uh, available to us, it's got to be a good thing for Mother Earth and uh, humanity. Well, at the moment, as we know, the establishment don't want that. You know, they don't want, no. uh, they want you to be yeah. a sheep, sick, think, poorly. Um, and so hopefully it'll change. Is there any accounts of anybody um, being healed or, you know, that kind of from these places? Oh, absolutely. Certain types of earth energies are, according to particular master dowsers, can be protective, for example. You always get a kind of protective energy associated to an ancient site. You can have healing ones. I mean, myself, recently, I was uh, in Athens. Uh, doing uh, some sacred sites over there, uh, doused, etc. I'd been to uh, Delphi, and for some reason, my ankle just twisted. It just gave way, yeah. and it, it was agony. I couldn't put my weight on it by the time I got back to the hotel, and I'm thinking, I'll have one day's rest, but then I don't care if I'm hobbling, but I'm going to hobble around the Acropolis, and I'm going to hobble mm, around absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I've absolutely. been there, it's beautiful. Well, yeah, a- yeah. A- a- Athens wasn't, but the Acropolis was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Athens could be a bit of a scary yeah, place. Yeah, you couldn't see actually. much in the morning. It was all just fog. Well, it's all, what do you call it? Mist smog. and smog. That's it, yeah. So, oh, as soon as you get to the top so of the mountains, good. just breathtaking. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I went up to, hobbled up to the Acropolis, went to a particular area that had been divined uh, before uh, that was said to be uh, healing. And I thought, well, I'll, I've got nothing to lose. You know, I'll, I'll do a meditation here. And, uh, and it got better and it got better and it got better progressively. And I did about a 20, 20 minute meditation there, tuning into to the energies. And, uh, and it seemed to, uh, to really seriously help. So by the end of that, I could walk. I didn't even think I was going to be able to walk to the plane. I thought I'd have to organise a wheelchair. It was that bad, yeah. you know, it really was. So, so yes, I've had first-hand experience of that. Other people I have taken around ancient sites. We have go to particular areas because uh, in a, associated to an ancient site, for example, you always have an avenue normally. And an avenue is a processional way that you would enter the sacred stone temple, stone circle complex. 
you tend to always have like a, an area that emits an awful lot of negative ions being released out of the ground. And we've recorded these uh, f- uh, frequencies and I found them through through dowsim. And it's almost like they kind of cleanse you because right by this stone, it has a little area where it has a ledge. It's not the devil's chair at Avebury. It's another one. It has a ledge. So you can have a cleansing moment and then you can go into on the energy lines that we spoke earlier onto the more harmonic, get your brain into the alpha. There are certain stones at Avebury that have high magnetism Mm, that can trigger your third eye, for example. So within a, a stone circle, you have lots of different sectors or stones uh, areas that can be used by your consciousness interacting with them on many different levels from healing to cleansing to activating your third eye. Mm. Well, I'm interested in the third eye aspect of it because it seems like when we look back in these ancient cultures, they all had access to, uh, you know, whether it was ayahuasca or mm. certain plants or certain places in this case where they were able to um, access uh, I use the word other dimensions uh, loosely but you know access maybe other dimensions and do you think Stonehenge places like this where a lot of people could gather and possibly chant at the same time with the acoustic prophets and all that do you think they was able to access these because uh, I've heard people even modern uh, modern day people saying that they've had their visionary experiences at these places so do you think Abs- it was able to access some sort of hidden realm, if you will? In- at, at Avery, you can fit a lot of people in and you can, you know, chant the, the Celtic uh, equivalent of Om, for example. And a lot of people have, have done that and had experiences and some of them have been conscious changing. You can fit a lot of people into Avery. But Stonehenge, actually, if you're right on the inner area, 20, 25 people, that was reserved for just a few people, Stonehenge. And the acoustics there say if you stood outside of the stone ring, well, you can't hear what's going on on the inside. It's that dramatic. Yeah. Is there is anywhere? Has there been a reconstruction of Stonehenge? You know, like what it would have looked like and all the rest of it. And actually, this the experiments tried, or is it some science not really interesting in? There is a, a, an example of Stonehenge replica. I think it's Maryland in the U.S. where they have done some acoustic tests to that to, you know, try and understand. But we must uh, remember as well that the, the depth of the stones can change the acoustics as well. So it would have to be the same below. And in my own research of Stonehenge, the first stone that was ever raised wasn't. It was buried beneath uh, stone number one of the uh, Aubrey ring of blue stones, for example. So there was like a stone going deep into the ground with a stone on top, linking in. Yeah, exactly. And and that's hardly spoken about in any archaeological uh, reports. It's a little end note, you know, Mm. in in a big big report. And you're thinking, wow, that's the most significant thing. That's why I think it's not just that stone. I think there's certain quadrants around that area that have stones beneath as much as above the ground. And I really think there was probably a chamber beneath the ground at Stonehenge uh, as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely definitely go along with that. So do you think this was almost used as some sort of... uh, I know we're looking into it now, uh, but this, like, collective consciousness, do you think this was... uh, Do you think people were able to go there and then almost get some sort of um, intelligence from these places? 
Yeah, they are. They can act like, I mean, back in the 80s, they were called earth gates. Today, we call them portals. I mean, it's the same yeah, principle, yeah. different names, so to speak. But I really do feel they're like access points where you can connect to, to you know, the earth mother in a, in a grounded but psychic way. And you can connect to the past, the present and the future. And uh, you can connect to the, to the cosmos as well, because a lot of our ancient sites are aligned to the sun and the moon and the planet planets and the stars so they're they're kind of interfaces of of the kind of the ground below and and the heavens above and as above and so below so we can really really connect to these sites and so i think they can act like a linear time time span Mm. just just before we get onto the uh the builders of these places and, and and stuff but the stone chambers um what, what what's your take on them because i've seen these there's one in cornwall and places like that but there's some in america they reckon that uh, maybe were built by the druids but who knows how um but basically that these stone chambers can be what well, i mean the sort of maximum height is probably three meters tall basically just rocks piled up what one person mm. maybe two people can get inside uh, and again air flights have been seen at these places so what, what's your take on those so, Yes, I mean, there are, are there deeper ones than that as well. Uh, that the Fogu of Cornwall, for example, were a particularly Iron Age Judidic monuments. You do get the chambers that were Neolithic and a Bronze Age. But the uh, to go inside of a, a Fogu, you can go down quite deep into the earth as well. I mean, one of the subterranean chambers uh, on Orkney Isles, right at the tip of Scotland, called Mine Howe, has 27 steps, which is a lunar number a goddess number going down in a spiral staircase literally Ooh. going right deep into the earth and then you at the last moment you have to take a literally a leap of faith and jump down which is about a meter or something it's not very big you know uh, you drop down and then you're surrounded by uh, the darkness and the the feeling of the stone getting ever closer ever closer ever closer to mm. you it you really does it. change change your mindset so they they were iron age so the iron age were like reconnecting to uh, to mother earth which was you know quite some time after the the chambers that you're talking about like you get in in america and places so these were very very deep into into the ground and they would they'd certainly take you away from the everyday ordinary into the extraordinary dimensional realms that that change you and you you come out like you've been reborn maybe a seer you go in there an average person you're coming out of here you know mm-hmm. they they transform us and that's why i always encourage people to come out by the with me or by themselves to these ancient sites and really experience yep. them firsthand well yeah i'm definitely signing up for that yeah definitely so, is there anything uh you know written down or anything what 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 do they uh, how do they explain these places and we do we know what they use them for what they say they use them for no the- theories abound i mean you see when the the time of the roman uh, invasion and the genocide that they committed against the druids uh, anyway in anglesey created a kind of you know a uh, victory dialogue so the romans called us barbarians and you know they they labeled us as being kind of like really scruffy and you know quite uh, quite an awful uh, warrior race but we weren't we we had seers and there was no really documented evidence about putting all the people into a wicker man 
that was the Romans said that about us. And if if we look at our own culture, then according to authors like John Michel, which I which I often quote, uh, he claims that the Pythagoras learnt from the Druids. So. So we were the educated peoples of ancient Europe and England and especially the White Cliffs of Dover were deemed sacred. As soon as you crossed those seas uh, in the Iron Age, you were at the, the uh, magical lands of Great Britain. So it had a lot of reverence yeah, about see, it, the, these isles. Well, so the Vatican, again, the, um, goes back yes. to the dark, dark. Establishment. Interesting that you bring up Pi because uh, or Pythagoras because the, the the stones which is obviously similar to uh, Stonehenge and other places in in the UK, but the stones of uh, Karnak in France they're meant to be aligned to Pi, so. Oh yeah, I mean you do get sacred geometry within the the stone circles. I mean we must remember that this is a, an advanced civilization that was very familiar with mathematics, astronomy, geomancy and the the spiritual magical side of religion as well that can activate and change people. So, you know, they were they were the masters and we're just catching up with what they knew to some to some degree. Well, I think some people probably understand it better than the letting on, but um, the, uh, the the actual you know that whole premise of uh, these people just coming about uh, hunter gatherers and stopping what they're doing to build these monuments without any uh, writing ability uh, and all the rest of it you well, know we, we, just, we know that's these, just lies. these things just springing up that you know that yeah. don't add up yeah, um, just... you know you need to be you need to like you just said you need to have a certain knowledge of. Uh, mathematics, uh, obviously the cosmos, things like that, before you can even attempt to do these things. So to, for it to happen almost overnight, uh, you know, straight after the Ice Age type thing. So to me, we, 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 it looks more like we're looking at advanced, uh, an advanced civilization that probably was trying to help people, uh, not just in England, but around the world as well. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, a culture isn't just born overnight, mm, no. it evolves. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly in the Neolithic, that was an inherited tradition from the Mesolithic who inherited it from somebody else or was given, given that is uh, equally uh, plausible. So, so yes, you know, I, I agree fully uh, with that. And I guess then we move on to the uh, elongated schools aspect of it because we're looking at these cultures that possibly had elongated schools and were more advanced than probably let on today as you know scientists wouldn't tell us but uh, and i know you've had some encounters with these elongated schools so yeah do you want to tell us about that well yes well um the reason why i kind of came about the elongated uh, skulls is because um i was at the time a very very stressed actually someone had reported me to the tax man for earning phenomenal amounts of money which i wish yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and i was going through an audit and it was a very stressful time of my life and a friend said to me you know you've really got to uh, relax a little bit more because you know you're going to give yourself a breakdown so um, my late father used to use what's called a two-point dousing fix and that's where you find something underground water minerals whatever and i thought i wonder if i changed it around in the stonehenge environs and i asked the landscape to show me somewhere of significance if it would work so i'm playing around just to try and release myself from just, stress just, just really. before you carry on do, do you believe that you can command this the the rods 
You can ask. It's that's called information dousing. You okay. can, uh, you know, gently command the rods, or you can do it the other yeah. way around, which is what I was doing, which was asking the the landscape rather than the me themselves. saying, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah I, I, was, I was just, yeah, I was yeah. just doing it the other way around. I was experimenting basically, mm. and I kept coming to this one point on Salisbury Plain where literally X marks the spot because you do a two point fix and you just draw a line on a map, and where these two bits meet is uh, is significant. So I thought, well. You know, it'll be a nice day out. I'll forget about the tax tax things. And I went uh, out there with uh, with a friend, and suddenly I was confronted with the largest long barrow ever constructed in Northwest Europe. And I thought this is a, this is amazing. And I thought that's strange because all the guidebooks and all the websites uh, on Google say that the largest in England is East Kennet Long Barrow, but here this is. It's a monster on Salisbury Plain. I began to investigate the people that were placed as the burial deposits in phase two into the, the mound. And because it was so huge, I expected to find like other communal long barrows, which were used to place not just one person in, but, you know, up to 50, sometimes 60 people would be interned. And it was turned out to be it had been designed for one person. And that person was a woman. And I thought, well, you hardly hear of women in prehistory apart from Boudicca, the Iceni yeah, queen. Yeah. For, for example. So I thought I have to try and track this this person down to understand her story. So with research, I was uh, went to the National Monuments Record Office in Swindon, which is near my hometown. I don't recommend a visit to Swindon. It's not the best place. It's definitely not it, a roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it does house, you know, a, a huge archaeological archive, basically. So I, I shuffled around in the archive and eventually came across some, uh, some old accounts of um, – what was found in there and I thought well now I can try and track it down physically so then I, I got the uh, through much ado found a, what's called a catalogue number phoned up uh, Cambridge University and said I'd like to have a look at this skull at this time I did not know what the skull was going to look like I just wanted to find out this person's story and uh, uh, got an appointment there and uh, I looked at the skull and instantly thought, goodness, this is elongated, very e elongated in shape. And uh, I'm a spiritual person. So I asked, I was with a curator and uh, my friend who's a really good photographer. And I asked Great Spirit for us to be left alone in the room. And within about sort of five minutes, the spirit must have heard me because she said, oh, you don't mind if I just go out and take a quick phone call, do you? And I said, no, no, of course not. And when she went out, I started to energetically put my hands around her throat chakra to, to see if I could pick up on her story, then round by her throat third eye and over her crown and just like you have these crystal skulls that a lot of your listeners are probably very familiar with and you feel the energy coming off them don't you is is what most people would uh, I, well I, I don't because I'm about as subtle as a brick oh <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> I, I wish you could <laughs> Yeah, well, well, that's that's what I felt. Similar to like the crystal uh, energy, then I realised, you know, she cannot be alone. Yeah. This is just not one person. So then I started to investigate all of the the long barrows on the Salisbury Plain, many of which you cannot visit because they are on top secret military yeah. lands. Mm. You can't just like poodle that's on right. them. Yeah. Exactly. You think that, that's and not coincidence, is no. it? No, no. <laughs> you see all the troops uh, around Salisbury Plain, all, you know, all the armies and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, Ridgeway, it's full of all the manoeuvres and 
Yeah. You know, why? Yeah. It's not rocket science, is it? No, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's not rocket science. It's there. And then one of the, the barrows that were uh, was on the Salisbury Plain in the no-go area is uh, it's called uh, Bowles Barrow. It's one of its nicknames, so to speak. So uh, I decided, couldn't go there, so I'd uh, research it. And again, um, after much going, sifting through report after report after report, I came across an account where they found uh, elongated skulls because they used to measure the, the index of the, the skull long ways, yeah. So that's how, how you would know when you look at an archaeological report or even an account written by, by somebody. So, and I thought, wow, they're all males. And I then thought, you know, I'll go back and I'll look at these reports. And it turned out that the female that I found, who I call the High Queen or the High Priestess of Stonehenge Phase 1, had been murdered. And then all of the people in Bowlesbarrow, all males in the prime of their life with some elderly uh, uh, males and with young children as young as six and one had been beheaded, were all put into this barrow. So it was almost like a genocide had taken place on Salisbury Plain to do with the elongated people. A genocide or a sacrifice. Uh, these showed a defence wound, okay. some of them. Mm. So they they must have like put up their arm in defence mm. or something, and they they were that that so time quite quite run down. I think their food or diet and had made restricted mm. elongated skulls or elongated been... okay. skulls. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So, but it but it's interesting what you said about the sacrifice because I thought a couple of months ago, and I know you mentioned Brian had been on your show, and I've been on a show with Brian about this uh, before. I thought the story ended around about 2500 BC with the killing of these people, uh, which I called a genocide. And then, lo and behold, I was um, investigating a certain aspect of Stonehenge and uh, read uh, quite an old archaeological report and, and sort of thought. No, this is another elongated person that had been uh, probably sacrificed in front of the entrance to Stonehenge in 2170 BC, which is much later than the 3100. So that's a thousand years later. And, and, And he had been shot at close range through the heart. So somebody knew what they were doing. This wasn't, you know, uh, a pop at somebody in a, in a war situation. He was stood there. He had uh, 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 an arrow through his heart. And then he was ceremonially placed right at the entrance in the northwest sector of Stonehenge, eternally looking at who's coming in and out of the monument there. Exactly. This is a full skeleton, but intriguingly, his feet may have been missing. So it was definitely ceremonially. Maybe that was symbolic of he's not going to leave. Do you see what I mean? It could have, could have, yeah, exactly. So I, I think he's there. And also, uh, he had been placed around an awful lot of ritual uh arrowheads that were beautiful and so he had a lot of grave goods around him which is only second to the Amesbury Archer which was found recently so you know it was it was a, a big thing and he was in the prime of his life he was 25 he had an elongated skull 25 or thereabouts he was strong and muscular mm. so so he was you know um, I mm. think uh, a ritual you think, uh, guardian there yeah, given his uh his physique and that. Do you think there was maybe afraid of him? You know, it was, or you know, 
what would you? I mean, it's I know it's speculation, but what what would you? What would be the reason to sacrifice someone like that? That's a really interesting question and one that I have thought about at depth because it could be that they were frightened. He was definitely one of the last of the elongated people as well, which makes the story even more intriguing. So were they frightened of these people? Then the round-skulled people definitely became more prominent in the yeah. Bronze Age. And our, over, our, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you do have these two types of cultures, races, uh, beings uh, that one time were living side by side across Europe and England as well. But then round about the time of uh, 2170 BC, the last of his kind, if you will, was, was a ritual killing. And that was at the same time that the Stonehenge, the blue stones that were in the centre of Stonehenge were changed into an oval shape. It was once thought they were a horseshoe of 19 blue stones, but now it's thought to be a big oval shape. So at that time, when they moved those stones and created a new central feature at Stonehenge, he became the guardian. Mm-hmm. So, they, so they closed him in or so mm. kept his secrets um, with him and kept him in Stonehenge. I, I mean, how well preserved were these things? I mean, do, do we have any indication of what colour hair they had? I mean, is there any mummified uh, remains of these people? Um, that's that's a that's a really good uh, question because there was a very strange burial rite in the Bronze Age that has only just been brought to light very recently through archaeologists such as uh, Martin Green and Michael Parker Pearson, who's a uh, familiar with the, the Stonehenge environs and this is what they, they did you see when obviously when somebody dear to us dies we bury them within sort of two to three weeks unless there's an inquest or something but averagely speaking yeah, yeah. What they were doing in the, the Bronze Age at the height of the stone circles was if somebody died, they might not necessarily bury them. They wrapped them and slightly mummified them so it would preserve the ligaments. And then when that started to fail, they made these round like rings to keep the skeleton all in place. So that was probably housed somewhere. Maybe they believe now up to 500 years before they were ever buried. So they just had them around 500 years. So, yeah, um, so, were these the seers? Did you go, yeah. go to them? Was it a shamanic practice? What was, what was going on? You know, almost like uh, there was expecting them to be resurrected or... Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know, it's speculation again, but that, that what comes to mind with me, you know, if you're trying to keep someone around for that long, or do you think there was some sort of energy that was given off? Well, this is the thing. It's very difficult because the the findings are very new. This was this has only been a report out, you know, in um, a couple of um, couple of um, six or seven months, I I believe, maybe a little bit longer. But that's very new in archaeological terms, anyway, because it was always thought that you know you were interned in a barrow and that was the end of the story. But it clearly seems that there's another chapter about the sacredness of the ancestors. Uh, not just communicating with them through the, the barrows, but through them personally. And as for colour hair, uh, I asked that question recently, hoping, you know, to tell people like Brian, oh, they're all red yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. A bit like the per- Peruvians, uh, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, the they're, they're, 
Paracas, exactly. So, but that hasn't been announced yet. Uh, but I think uh, archaeologists yet. love to write their own papers and do a program on it because they get the financial fund in that way. And uh, so I think, you know, that's to be continued, that story. And when we're talking about these elongated schools, are we talking about uh, forced uh, bindings, you know, to, to elongated schools? Are we talking about a, an actual, uh, you know, being born that way? Yeah, head binding versus uh, nature, so mm. to speak. Do we know? Yeah, in the it appears in the the Stonehenge uh, environs that they were probably born like that because when we when we look to some European sites close by, and by that I mean France as a neighbour, and we were connected to the continent at the time of the elongated ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was there was no sea there, so we imagine we're a continent now, and we're we're connected to Europe and. Some of the elongated burials there are by uh, round-skulled people, middle-skulled people, like a cross between an elongated skull and a round skull. So you have a middle-sized one, all buried together. So it seems that could it be that the middle-sized skulls, so to speak, were intermarried or, you know, with the the round and the the elongated. And also there was... um, uh, a signs of uh, I've got to have some further research in this but it's quite exciting that there seems to be coming from uh, France uh, the an antiquarian drawing of an elongated child so yeah. it, it would look like if that is correct because this is antiquarian it could have been you know slightly manipulating something yeah. Yeah. you've got to research it but I, I'm researching that uh, at the moment and some of their their monuments uh, in France and in Europe but I actually would put my money on that this was a, a type of, of a human being that is different to us and they would have been instantly recognised in the Stonehenge environs they were quite short as well they were only about five foot five foot four five foot six at the tallest but they had a kind of presence uh, about them and they know this because they were the skulls were interned with what's called the long bone of the leg and once you have like the long bone of the leg you can start to anticipate height for example uh, which is what they did to calculate it so I, I think that yeah my money is on that these are a distinctive type Hmm. I know that, and, and from what I've read about Neanderthals, I know they were slightly smaller than the uh, Homo sapiens sapiens. So, do you think they're, they're more of a branch of those people, or do you think these are distinctively different completely? It could be. I mean, other authors uh, on this, they their research has led them to the the northern lands above Turkey, where they think that there's been DNA evidence of that that could relate to the long skulled people. So it could have been that they came, you know, migrated from the north down through Turkey, built Gobekli um, Tepe, yeah, yeah, and places other places besides that probably haven't been found yet. And at the same time, they could have been uh, monumentalizing uh, other parts of Europe as well. And I suspect that. But at the same time, I do think that there were certain people that would, it's a bit like a fashion item. Well, look, they're they're a priest or they're always respected. I think my child should have an equal right. I'm going to headbind my uh, my child. It was supposed to dominate the nobility from the commoner, wasn't it? Well, from my yeah. understanding, so, so absolutely yeah, no, not common. Yeah, 
Sorry, yeah. No, no, the commoners would get put into the uh, burial deposits for the long barrows. That they were probably preserved for the the royalty or the priesthood uh, for sure. Mm. And that that queen, the school that you call the queen, that was she she was found inside the barrow. Is that right? Yes, uh, she was uh, taken out in about sort of the 1800s. Uh, because there was uh, an antiquarian archaeologist that was also a doctor who was looking at all of the barrows to try and understand the the people. He was the uh, superintendent of an asylum, so he was very interested in skulls, and he he amassed the biggest uh, collection. Basically, he he ransacked a lot of the the barrows. I mean, you wouldn't do that uh, today, but if you were posh and moneyed and you had a worker, you know, you could, uh, in a good shovel, you could do what you like in in the the landscape a couple of hundred years ago. I've I've heard there's some places still in the UK where, you know, like uh, the privately owned land, if you like, like farmers or whatever. I've heard there's quite a few around Wales and places like that where, these farmers just won't let anybody go and excavate these these areas. It, what were believed to be mounds. Uh, so, do you think you know? Hopefully, we can hope you know hope that these farmers change their mind at some point, and we do get access to these, which are hopefully um, still intact. Um, they will. They will be uh, intact. I mean, it's the same in in Wessex, mm. where where I live in in Wiltshire. Mm. Some of the farmers have stone circles not that far from Avery that the, the tor- tourists wouldn't have even heard about. But they don't want them excavated because they don't want tourism there. There has also been underground chambers found near these uh, stone circles and mounds that have never been uh, excavated or ransacked. I mean, what what these people were looking for as well as the skulls was because uh, an antiquarian hit gold at Stonehenge at the bush barrow suddenly you thought wow I could be in the money basically so Mm. they got sponsored by the gentry to make them even richer and if they hit gold which was rare actually but when they did it was like bingo but we were talking about guardians earlier and uh, Avebury has uh, has a guardian that was ceremonially placed as well into the henge bank overlooking the people that came in but this time she was a, a very short woman she's often called the dwarf uh, burial but she was about just under five feet maybe a little bit shorter and she may have even had a medicine bag so she could have been a priestess and she was placed into the henge bank just like our elongated last of the elongated ones at Stonehenge but she had more of a rounder rounder skull she wasn't contemporary with the stones of Avebury she came a little bit later but she must have had some kind of power or significance and must have been well known to have been placed into the henge bank because she's the only person found there. So in, in you know, in modern times what we call a witch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well yeah, that's definitely kind of we know what use today, yeah. but it's so yeah, priestesses it's these um, Do you think that the the Queen, as you say, do you think she was killed and the people outside the barrow that were buried there, the elongated school fellas, like you say, and children, do you think they were all killed around the same time or do you think they were killed a bit later on? Yeah, and in the more barrows beside, every single barrow in that vicinity housed somebody that had been murdered. Okay. It's It was barrow after barrow oh. after after barrow, I think, actually. I think it's Just... strange to murder people and then bury them in such a, yeah. a way, you know? 
Yeah, with with dignity and yeah. with grace, placing the skull very carefully into the barrow chambers as well. I mean, if if you don't like somebody, you'd probably just, you know, be very disrespectful. But no, these people were very, very respectful. So it is quite the whole story that's unfolded. And I was the first to rediscover all of this through the, through initially the dowsing and then the research, you know, like Brian, you've got to research yeah. these things yeah. and it and it leads to more questions than it does answers anyway but uh, it is an untold part of the Stonehenge history it really is and I think you know there's more to find out and there's more to discover mm, you know, it depends though it's not you know, even if the truth came out you know I don't think all of it would come out you know, I'd love it all this information to come out but I can't see it Obviously, we'd there's, have a, there's to, a lot that's been kept back. Of course, we know yeah. that, don't we? Do you think it's actually being covered up? Then would you go as far as to say that, or do you think it's just? Well, I mean, that's a, that's again a really good question. I mean, we, we're all familiar with the, the Smithsonian Institute, mm-hmm. who you know probably uh, have actively covered up a lot of the the large finds of the uh, the Americas. I really do feel that the the British Museum and uh, especially Cambridge section of their their university houses an immense amount of uh, skulls. When I was in looking at the Neolithic Queen, I was in a warehouse, okay. you know, controlled yeah. environment yeah, with yeah. air and everything. So she's not but on it was way. no, nope. but she uh, mm. she she was with. I mean, if you imagine like uh, the two stories high with ladders going up and cardboard box after cardboard box. I mean, there must have been a thousand or more of these cardboard boxes in that one section that I could see alone. And I was just looking up and seeing Abydos, male, Abydos, female, Abydos. And for all I could see was an Egyptian section going down one side and the Stonehenge section must have been down the far side because that's where she went to get the box. And you'd think it would be computerized who goes to see these uh, artifacts but it was like you know an old-fashioned library ticket where you sign in and you write a date (laughs) well I had to sign in and write a date like that so obviously I did and I thought gosh the last time that she'd been seen was in the uh, 1930s So nobody had bothered to find out who was in these barrows because the archaeologists are more interested in the monuments than the people that built them and the artifacts Exactly. Yeah. So the, the people got, oh, I just, I feel it, they got overlooked. But at the same time, why aren't we, why aren't we freely uh, having this information coming to us? Why isn't there anyone archiving mm. this? Uh, this is Cambridge University, mm. you know, and it, and they have all of these finds. Why aren't they being processed and, and being given airtime? It's intriguing. It you, does make, make you wonder. Makes you wonder, but it definitely makes you wonder what else is in those boxes. <laughs> yeah, good to look, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh it, yeah, I'd love love to squirrel around. <laughs> <laughs> this is just just another again, just to keep man dumbed down to you no, know, not tell him his true history. You know, time and time again we talk about this, don't we? But mm. it's, well, it certainly looks like from the evidence that's presented, I guess, around the world, it certainly looks like we've uh, we've come and died out and come again, almost, you know? Yeah, but this time um, we've come and, you know, at this time, present time, in, in my opinion, man is backward, mm. you know, we should be going forward, well, you know, but we seem to go backward, you know, at the moment. That's, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, actually. With the, with the uh, increase in, uh, you know, Wi-Fi and, and all these, you know, rays that were hit with, 
I mean, what is Wi-Fi? Wi-Fi is like Wi-Fi. the equivalent of Absolutely. putting your head in a microwave, you know what I mean? Same with, uh, oh, no. So do you yeah. think yeah. we're going to lose some of this? We're, we're kind of rediscovering. Do you think we're going to actually lose it due to the you know Tetra mass and all the rest of it that are around us? A standing stone, as I have uh, proved, and uh, listeners can go to my website, the, the AveburyExperience.co.uk, and have a look at an article called Megalithic Energy. Mm. Now, if, if you put a standing stone into a lay, an earth current, underground water, whatever, let's just say energetic, yeah? yeah? Yep. And, and like an acupuncture point, boom, you've, you've hit, uh, hit the right place. Well, a standing stone will start to emit certain energy bands in particular directions, like a laser beam of energy. And David Webb, the engineer that has come out with me to do a lot of experiments on negative ions, AC fields, DC fields at ancient sites, he noticed that the Rollwright stone circle, which is a stone circle proper, Avebury and Stonehenge are ruinous and no longer retain their circular shape. But Rollwright has a circular shape and he was starting to pick up man-made signals being transmitted by the standing stones. That's what they're designed to do mm. so so if you have uh continually being swamped with e-smog, electromagnetic energy through Wi-Fi, through Mars and uh, and everything else, smartphones, then you, the, the stones will, will begin to transmit these things. They're, they're starting to all, already. I really do feel that the, the, the grids that used to be quite passive, like the Hartman grid, which has been known since the 50s, discovered by Dr. Hartman, hence Hartman grid name. Mm. Uh, it's about yeah, and it's about 2.5 meters by two meters. It's a grid. Imagine lots of little squares everywhere, and it's yeah. uh, like a fishnet over Mother Earth. You've got a grid yeah. system, and uh, that was always considered quite benign, apart from in thunderstorms, volcanic activity. You know, something big, and then. The, the, the grid would vibrate and it would become a uh, geopathic stress, a bit toxic. But now uh, a lot of uh, douses, especially on the, the continent, have noticed that it's starting to transmit the Wi-Fi signals, electromagnetic energy. So you need to evaluate your house and your home. What was once a, a benign or, you know, near enough benign grid can become quite toxic now. So dowsers such as myself can go into to a house and start to have a look at, oh, is that is your TV on a grid? Is your router on a grid? That's what you don't want. You want to put them into the neutral zones and there's other grids bizarre, besides so called the carrying net. This is back to Feng Shui again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but you know, house, yeah, now we have to take responsibility and if we do want our, our smartphones and our Wi-Fi and I'm hands up, here I am on my laptop yeah. near router with, with a smartphone that I'm semi-addicted to. Absolutely. You know, I'm no, I'm no angel uh, with this, but I, I do feel that we have to, uh, my home is at least harmonised to, to, to the grid it's, and it was Look, I was going to say, is there a way to counterbalance it? Is there something you can bring into your home to... to yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can buy lots of uh, devices. You can put geopathic distress device into Google and it will come up with hit after hit. But one that isn't uh, advertised that much because it empowers you to make something yourself for next to nothing, so websites don't get a commission or anything uh, on that, is to take two bits of uh, copper... Uh, thin thin copper and say let's have them about two meters long and you tie them together at one end and then you put them into a drill and put the drill on and it will make them go round and round and round like plat them 
So they, they become, and then you make it into a circle. And if you're really clever, you can uh, solder the end, or you could just tape, tape it up, or hook it in. And that's called a Lukoski coil, and that can diffuse most things uh, in your home from underground water to other forms of geopathic stress. So that's always a good one, and you can put it behind a sofa, in the attic, in a basement. You can lie flat. You can put it upright. And even if you wanted to create an electrical system in your garden, so that you didn't want slugs uh, eating your lettuces, or this is what I should have done, says she with an experiment yeah. of rabbit <laughs> set, but, but hey, uh, you can start to set up a, a kind of that copper and slugs won't cross it because it, it makes an electrical field. It's taking the electrical substances from your home and making it uh, be infused into the copper device. It's, it's really cheap. It's easy to do. Anyone can do it. Yeah, because we, we sometimes wear copper bracelets to alleviate back pain and things, don't we? So mm. it's, uh, it's always, you know, this use of copper. Well, it's been like arthritis, around, isn't it? Arthritis, arthritis yeah, that sort of thing. Stuff yeah. and, you know, so, um, I've got arthritis in my arm now. But. Getting back to the standing stones then with this this radio, you know, picking up this Wi-Fi, which is interesting. Do you think, uh, do you think, well, I'm going to say it's going to sound strange, but do you, do you think they would would be able to use this in the past for the, for receiving messages from uh, maybe the universe or maybe another like portal, if you like, somewhere else, you know, like because these standing stones go as far as Asia, as far as I'm aware. So do you think they could almost communicate between them? Yes, I that that is what they're they're designed to do, mm. and like lays, they're designed to transmit energy that the stone circle can produce. Yeah, yeah like uh, uh, well, like you know when you got like uh, the paper cups on a string. Mm. Yeah. That that that's it. Uh, that's it exactly. Yeah. And hello, and hello, you, hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can start to, I think, certainly, you know, communicate. And then when you have, you know, underground water to boot, and underground water has memory. Yeah, all, all homopaths will say that, and water has memory. And the underground water that you that prevails at sacred site after sacred site can act as a memory storage, like a kind of Akashic record okay. of events past within the ancient site. And some people can tap into that uh, as well. And, you know, stones are sensitive. I mean, they're not... Uh, dead pieces of rock i mean the ancient druids we were talking about earlier saw everything as as living Absolutely. and a stone yeah exactly Absolutely. And, a, and a stone's lattice contains countless millions of atoms and it's not static structure but at 21 degrees celsius in for us brits that's a nice temperature mm, isn't it yeah. Yeah, the, the the stone can feel that, and it starts to vibrate, uh, and and its vibrations get faster. So when the sun at the summer solstice, for example, at Stonehenge, you know, rises up on a, hopefully a clear morning, uh, the sunlight will uh, affect the the stone's lattice. And likewise, the cooler and cooler and cooler the environment gets, the the lattice vibrates slower until a maximum of minus two hundred and seventy three degrees, which is unrealistic. But this is what they did in a lab to see when it stops vibrating. That's when it becomes motionless. So the stones react to to the sun rises and sunsets, just like us humans do. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, because uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if we're any closer to understanding it. You know, I think, I think many people. I think, I, know, I think many people do, uh, but it's other people grasping it, and mm. I think it's a. Uh, a lot of the people haven't got that information. 
you know, they. I think that man's true history has been kept from us. You know, the true history of you know our our own history um, has been really kept from us. And mm. um, I think it's coming out in dribs and drabs, but not enough to wake enough people up. Maybe. Maybe. So. Do you- yeah, I agree, and that is really beautifully put, what you've just said. Our own history is kept from us, and that is so, so spot on. Beautifully descriptive and 100% accurate uh, is my opinion as well. Before I uh, let you go, I should probably ask, because I know a lot of people associate these elongate, especially with the, the rise of the ancient aliens popularity, yeah. and a lot of people associate these uh, schools with with ancient aliens would you go as far as that or I know it's speculation but or do you you think they are of this earth the DNA analysis according to to an author uh, Andy Collins seems to suggest that they come from the the north of Europe in DNA analysis but has there been any DNA analysis on the Stonehenge skulls no so I mean do I know no I don't my my instinct when I saw her was that she looked very very human to me but you know until you have good DNA analysis and a proper survey done Jury's out. Was you allowed to take any pictures? Yeah, yeah. I've I've, I've produced a, a booklet on it, which was uh, leading up to my. I've got a. I'm researching my next book on Stonehenge with some amazing new finds about Henge monuments that have been overlooked and not will not be seen for about five thousand years. It's really quite quite amazing. And I did. I photographed her and produced uh, produced photographs in a book. I've done lectures where I've presented um, her photograph because it's solid evidence. It's un. It, it, it is un undeniable do you know if she's still there no because you see this is the thing about cambridge i mean they don't really make things that easy i'm trying to communicate at the moment with a particular skull in a nearby university section and uh, uh the the curator there is off looking at skulls in south africa and won't be back for six months and okay. there isn't an assistant you think he's out so the shop's shut yeah Exactly, and you, yeah. again, it's just like coming against this this brick wall. Unless you're kind of thick-skinned and yeah. you know or, determined. Or got a big book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's one thing I don't have. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's not what the taxpayer said. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but actually, you just brought up something there, which is quite interesting, and and. And confuses me to some extent is is why the stones of Stonehenge uh, the and they don't have any carvings on them, you know, because these people are obviously able to quarry these stones and all the rest of it. But why why would why do you think there's no carvings on them? Do you think that's deliberate? Well, obviously it's deliberate. Do you think it was, mm. you know, so it wouldn't wouldn't leave uh, you know like a record of how they use, how they worked or whatever. That's a really, really good question. But I think they did, you see, because there is a really, really old report around about the time of Henry VIII. Yeah, Elizabethan report where there was a very learned gentleman he used to teach at St. St. Paul's the area of St. Paul's the cathedral wasn't built then you know but that's where he came from in London he knew about uh, lots of different languages like how Greek words were written you know the triangular shapes and the backward N and that, that sort of thing he, he was very learned and what they found uh, uh, they claim at Stonehenge was this metal 
table. It was quite big. Yeah. And um, they couldn't figure out what sort of metal it was. Was it tin? Was it steel? They really didn't have a clue of uh, what, what it was. And they said it had very, very strange uh, writing on it that nobody could decipher. So they were looking at a kind of symbolic language. Now, one of the stones of the greater... Uh, near the greater uh, trilithon, for example, has an area that has a big rectangle rectangle shape on it that is indented, that if that tablet was of similar proportions, which it would have been, Mm. exactly, it would have gone into that area and been maybe a written record of our, our, you know, our holy history, Mm. our ancestry, but it went missing. If you want to make this work, press this button. It's yeah. torn to the ass to the left. You know what I mean? But also, that, ta- that, that table has disappeared. Yeah. It's not there oh, yeah. anymore. Where, 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 where does it? Where yeah. is it meant to have gone? I can guess. Where, I know where that's gone. <laughs> where did it, yeah. where does history say it Somewhere went? Somewhere in Italy. Yeah, uh, quite possibly, you know, because uh, but where history uh, says it went, well, that's the thing. The the trail stops there. It's yeah. it's it's as, disappeared. As, as the saying goes, all the roads all the roads lead to Rome. Yeah, yeah, it would not. I think you're right. It wouldn't uh, surprise me at all. Absolutely. Yeah, it's another another place we should all be rummaging around in. Yeah, all under the catacombs. They've got a lot of treasures um, in there. Aren't they? There was a similar report to that. Uh, what um, there was another uh, earthwork, if you like, uh, and I think this again was on the border of Wales and England, and uh, the similar thing happened there. They they were started digging down, excavating into it, and they said the hit metal, which they believed was possibly some sort of lead, um, but it was in a it was in a flat sheet, and I think it was quite a, a decent Ooh. size. Um, I think it was maybe like ten foot by uh, fifteen foot or something like that. It was a big lump of uh, what they said was flat uh, lead, and they hit that. And I wasn't sure who put that there or what it was there for. Um, and I'm sure that was somewhere near Wales. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. But that is really, really interesting because I do feel that, you know, that that piece of metal that uh, could have been put onto that stone at uh, Stonehenge contained uh, some kind of language that they were nobody seemed familiar with uh, at the time as well and they asked you know the top scholars of the time to decipher it and no nobody could and and could it be that you know that other find uh, in Wales because the blue stones came from Wales it could exactly. be a real yeah, good yeah, that's the connection yeah. uh, there I'll, so I'll try that's and, fascinating I know the guy who uh, who's uh, relayed that information to me I'll see if I can find the the place and i'll send it to you um fantastic yeah because it's uh, with you bringing up the the metal of stonehenge which i didn't know anything about so it makes uh some sort of correlation maybe but um emory the eighth you know that that brings me on to past life regressions i think you do a bit of that don't you so maybe i'll uh <laughs> i've, I've been tried to go yeah. I've, I've been tried you know i've tried to go but i have just can't on, go under uh, i've never gone under have you on so. again to talk about that that side of things <laughs> But, yeah, um, yeah def- definitely, because I've got a book out soon, uh, p- published by Dolores Cannon's uh, yeah. publishing company, and she's really big in yeah. America and past yeah. life regression. So, so yeah, uh, that's quite fascinating. That's and uh, old lady, isn't it? I've got two or three of her books. Yeah. She's really, oh. uh, yeah, she's fantastic. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is it convoluted uh, universe? Convoluted universe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, yeah. two or three or four of them, isn't there? But yeah, there I, is. I've also listened to Doris on the uh, on the. YouTube as well, seen the videos, and she's a bucket of information. Mm. Really, she is, you know. 
Yeah. But I mean, she goes deeper than maybe any other can, hypno- uh, hypnotist. Maybe we can talk goes. about that another time. Cause yeah, okay. So that, yeah. that fascinates me as well. But um, well, I'll tell you what we'll do for for next show because I, I've developed, uh, which I believe is inspired by the Druids, uh, an astrological way to get to your most significant past lives, which equated to some of Dolores's own as well. She, you know, she she doesn't take fools gladly. And when I came out with, I think I've got a Druid system, it was you know uh, validated uh, in a way, and that's why her company's going to be uh, publishing uh, this. We could do your chart and then uh, then discuss it. Yeah, I've been told by many of my. My psychic friends that have uh, one of my past lives was a Native American Indian, I think the Navajo, I think. So that's quite. I'd love to do that because I'm, I'm yeah. quite skeptical on all that. But you know, yeah, the, the more I look into it, the more it seems to uh, it seems to make a bit of sense. So yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely yeah. have a go at that. Yeah, definitely. Well, love I, some of that. I, I tell you that when you've got a skeptic and a sensitive, because it sounds like you're kind of left brain right brain team yep. if you don't yeah, mind me yeah, saying yeah. so yeah so i think to have a skeptic like that it's really good because you know we can go through certain things which will you'll find will resonate uh, with how you are today and mm. why you're like that today mm. that'd be fascinating so uh well, just remains to say thank you very much for coming on, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Fan- it's been fantastic. Thank you, Maria. Really has. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been great as well. I've really enjoyed talking to you. You're both quite knowledgeable about these subjects, and it's been fascinating. Thanks. Well, that's the only thing I'm knowledgeable about. <laughs> <laughs>